All right, let's turn to chapter 2 of the book of Romans. Well, there's been a couple of situations in my life where I have been in a crowd of people and I've caught an unusual smell. I knew immediately from my experience in high school that it was a body odor. The most embarrassing thing about those situations that I recall is that <clears throat> it was my own. <laughs> I noticed it, I was sure it was somebody else's, and I later discovered I was the one who was stinking. Which reminds me about a guy who took a trip down a country road and he ran over a skunk, but he didn't know it. He smelled something foul and knew that there was a skunk around somewhere, opened his window, the smell was worse, went down the road, smell was there. He concluded after miles that there were skunks everywhere that were dead, when in fact it was his own car. It is amazing how good we are at smelling the sins of others. And uh, we notice them. And the reason perhaps we notice them so well is because we are familiar with the odor. It's in our lives. Uh, Paul in this chapter picks up on the amazing capability that human beings have to notice the sins of others, to smell those sins, and to be lenient with that same sin in their own life. I guess that's part of human nature. It's part of the rotten part of human nature. And uh, we need to be aware of that. Even Jesus pointed that out. Uh, there is an imaginary character in Paul's writings. Um, he is speaking to different classes of society. And in chapter 2, he is speaking to the moralist. Now, we, we started to get into a few verses in the last two or three minutes. I actually had forgotten where we left off. I had to get on the Internet today to listen to the study at the end to find out where we left off, to be honest with you. But we just barely grazed the beginning of chapter 2, and then we had to leave off. But he's speaking to the moralist. The one who professes to have high ethical moral standards but is himself judging others and not living up to the standards. Now in the previous chapter, he addresses the blatant sinner. He knows he's doing wrong. He approves of other people who are doing the same wrong that he is doing. And that is consistent with that lifestyle. If you're a sinner, you applaud those who are sinning. However, in this chapter, he speaks to those who are also doing things wrong, but judging others who are doing them. That's hypocrisy. I think that's a step worse. Therefore, you are inexcusable, O man, whoever you are who judge, for in whatever you judge another person, you condemn yourself. For you who judge practice the same things. But we know that the judgment of God is according to truth, against those who practice such things. And do you think this, O oh man, that's his imaginary friend, his imaginary man, hypothetically, you who judge those practicing such things and doing the same, that you will escape the judgment of God? Or do you despise the riches of his goodness, forbearance, and long-suffering, not knowing that the goodness of God leads you to repentance? It will be helpful if you can remember that in this chapter, Paul is not speaking about salvation, but he is speaking about judgment 
and the basis upon which God will judge humanity come judgment day. The basis is upon what they do, not just what they say, what they do, how they live, their works. It is easy to work ourselves into a state of self-righteous indignation over the sins of others, to point the finger and forget that there's three pointing back at us. This is the person he addresses here. Um, one of his points, I believe, is this. If our critical faculties are so honed that we can spot sin that well in other people, then we have no excuse. We should be able to see it in our own lives. Keep in mind, he is not calling us to suspend critical judgment. He's not saying, do not discern. He's not saying, do not make a righteous judgment, as Jesus commands us to do. He's just saying, don't forget to include yourself in that. Now, Jesus speaks to this on the Sermon on the Mount. He says these familiar words, Why do you look at the speck in your brother's eye, and you do not consider that you have a telephone pole in your own eye? That's a loose paraphrase. The issue is a speck versus a huge piece of wood, a plank, uh, two-by-four, telephone pole, whatever. Jesus said, first remove the plank in order that you'll be able to see the speck in your brother's eye. It is sad but true, almost humorous but in reality not, that in some Christian circles you can get by with cheating, with lying, with gossip, with slander. But if you smoke a cigarette or they found out you had a beer in your refrigerator, The same group may be slandering by gossip all over the place and not considering the huge, huge plank. That's hypocrisy. Example, we know the story well, don't we? David sinned against Bathsheba. And remember Nathan came in with a little story, kind of couched the whole thing in a parable. And the parable was about a man who owned a little uh, lamb. He was a poor man. All he could afford is one lamb. Versus this real rich guy who had many flocks of sheep. And the rich guy, when he invites his friends over, has a big feast. And instead of using one of his many lambs, he takes the one lamb from the poor man, slaughters it, and has a meal. David heard the story, thinking it was a real situation. And he became livid. I can picture him turning red, raging. And he said, that man shall surely die. We wonder at his rage, since the Mosaic law stipulated not death for a lamb, but a fourfold restoration. That was the maximum imposed by the law of Moses, and yet he's ready to, ready to kill the guy. Why? Because he is seeing his sin worn on somebody else. He has a plank in his eye that has not been removed, and he's seeing the sawdust speck through the plank, and he sees the plank on the guy, but it's his own sin. It's his own plank that has to be removed first. Verse 4 is important to those who judge in that capacity. Do you despise the riches of his goodness and forbearance and long-suffering, not knowing that the goodness of God leads you to repentance? I love that. It's God's kindness, his goodness. 
I tell you what, that's what got a hold of my life. I wasn't attracted to the righteous judge, though I found him to be a righteous judge. We'll find that in the next few verses. But what attracted me is that he was so willing to forgive me. Satan often reminds us, does he not, about who we really are. I know the truth about you. I'm going to tell everybody the truth about you. Oh, don't do that. But then the willingness for God to step in and say, you know what, I know the truth about you too. And I'm willing to wash you clean. Leads us to God in repentance. But in accordance with your hardness and your impenitent heart, you are treasuring up for yourself wrath in the day of wrath and revelation of the righteous judgment of God. Keep that phrase in your mind, the righteous judgment of God, who will render to each one according to his deeds. Eternal life to those who by patient continuance in doing good seek for glory, honor, and immortality. To those who are self-seeking and do not obey the truth but obey unrighteousness, indignation, and wrath. Tribulation and anguish on every soul of man who does evil, of the Jew first and also to the Greek. For there is no partiality with God. It's an important phrase now, the righteous judgment of God. That's what he's speaking about, not the salvation that God gives man, but the righteous judgment of God that will be based upon deeds. Deeds. This is one of the themes of the prophet Jeremiah, one of the themes of the prophet Hosea, a truth affirmed by Christ, by Paul, by Peter, by the book of Revelation, that God's judgment will be according to works. You say, wait a minute, I thought we're justified by faith. Very good, we are. We're justified completely by God's grace through faith. But judgment is according to your works. That is, if you're an unbeliever, that's what you'll be judged by. If you're a believer... Since Christ's work on the cross was sufficient to save us, we place our faith in him, he covers us, that's the work we're judged by. But even as believers, we're going to stand before the bima seat, the judgment seat of Christ, and we're going to be judged according to our good works or lack thereof. We'll get rewards based on those deeds or we'll miss a reward because of the lack of those deeds. So judgment is in accordance with what we do. It's one of the themes of Scripture. Notice in verse 8, the two final destinies of man. I think that's important. Verse 7, eternal life. Verses, verse 8, indignation and wrath, tribulation and anguish. There are two destinies. Isn't that right? Didn't Jesus say there's a wide gate and a narrow gate? One leads to life, one leads to destruction. Same thing here. God made it simple. Here's two choices. Here's two roads. There is a road that seems right unto a man, but the end is the way of death. There's two paths. There's not heaven, hell, purgatory, limbo, and other intermediary stops. There's heaven and hell. Or in Paul's words, eternal life versus indignation and wrath. Just in case... There are some who have a mistaken idea about hell. Have you ever met somebody who has a strange view of hell? Things like this. Well, I don't want to go to heaven. All my friends are in hell. I'm going to party down, man. I'm going to party in hell. Uh, that is, at best, 
really lame. Listen to what uh, Ted Turner from Turner Broadcasting said. Heaven is perfect. Who wants to go to a place that's perfect? I do. He says, boring, boring, boring. But of hell, he says, we're going to have a chance to make things better because hell's supposed to be a mess. I don't get the idea from reading the scripture that there's a tenant improvement clause when it comes to the description of hell. No chance for improvement. That's not the idea. Now, this is always objected to. In fact, face it, lots of preachers will not even touch the subject of hell. It is too disdainful and distasteful to most humans. We'd rather not mention it or not believe in it. Because the big question, why would God, loving God, send me to hell? He won't. You'll send yourself. Hell was not prepared for people. Jesus always spoke of hell as a place of torment prepared for the devil and his angels. But then think about also that God is just. If he's not just, then he is amoral. That is, without morals, then he's not loving. He has to be just. And if a person said by his own free choice repeatedly, I want nothing to do with God, why would God make you be with him forever? Hell is simply God's great complement to the freedom of human choice. It was not made for man, but man can choose to go there. Verse 12, for as many as have sinned without the law will also perish without law. As many as have sinned in the law will be judged by the law. For not the hearers of the law are just in the sight of God, but the doers of the law will be justified. For when Gentiles who do not have the law by nature do the things in the law, these, although not having the law, are a law to themselves, who show the work of the law written in their hearts, their conscience also bearing witness and between themselves and their thoughts, accusing or else excusing them. God will never judge a person by a standard that they have not known. Now, this, is, this bears careful listening. If a person has lived apart from law, then God will not use law as the standard of judgment. Whereas, if a person has known the law, they haven't been ignorant. They've known it. Then that law, referring here to the law of Moses principally, but all law, they will be judged by it. Verse 13, however, is hypothetical. Notice, this is important because it could sound confusing. For not the hearers of the law are just in the sight of God, but the doers of the law will be justified. Really? I mean, if I, if I do the law, I'll be justified? Let me ask you this question before you... To, to answer that question, do you know anyone really who is able to fully obey all the law of God? If you think you have, then you have to disagree with God who said to the children of Israel, oh, that they would have a heart. Oh, that they had a heart within them to obey the law. He recognized they couldn't do it. And so it's a hypothetical thing. 
Because if you look over at chapter 3, verse 20, he says, Therefore, by the deeds of the law, no flesh will be justified in his sight, for by the law is the knowledge of sin. So again, Paul isn't writing about salvation here, but judgment, that the law will not give a person immunity on the day of judgment. It seems to be his principal point. What matters is not the possession of the law in the hand, the practice of the law from the heart is what counts. And he'll say, all have sinned, fallen short of the glory of God. So, who show the work of the law written in their hearts, their conscience bearing witness between themselves, their thoughts accusing or excusing them in the day when God will judge the secrets of men by Jesus Christ according to my gospel. Two things are said of the judgment that we should keep in mind. Number one, uh, God will judge the secrets of men's hearts. That means there's no such thing as a hidden area. All of those areas that we think nobody knows about, Keep in mind, God knows more about them than you know about them. Which makes God the perfect judge, because he knows every thought, every motive, everything is laid bare. There'll be no miscarriage of justice, because all the facts, all the thoughts, all the motives are brought into the courtroom. Nobody complete ignorance. In fact, nobody complete ignorance, because every person has sinned, against some moral law. Whether that person has known through general revelation of creation that a God exists, be he an animist or whatever, that there's some God, some form, something, or by special revelation, you know the true God, the God of Israel. Whether it's general or special revelation, all people have known something about God, but have suppressed that knowledge, that's his point in chapter 1, so as to excuse their own moral behavior, to give them a reason to do whatever they want to do. And, and I found this to be true on a number of occasions. I've talked to people who have said, this is the surface saying, I, I just, I can't believe in God. Now, it makes it sound like they have an intellectual problem. As if to say, you know, I'd really like to believe, I'd like to lower myself to the intellectual level that you are and really believe that. It'd be a fun little fairy tale to believe, but I, I just can't. And so I'll press them. Let's just hypothetically say I could prove to you or I could demonstrate by the burden of proof, by the evidence that there is a God who created you, that Jesus Christ is who he said he is. If that could be shown by evidence... Would you then turn your life over to him? No. That's what I thought. Then you should rephrase that to an honest statement, not, well, I just can't believe that, but you should be honest enough to say, I won't believe that. You have a moral problem. There is something that you will not do because if you were to do that, you would have to change certain things in your lifestyle, your moral behavior. Second thing to notice here about God's judgment is that the judge will be whom? The Savior. The Savior will be the judge. He will carry it out by Jesus Christ. Jesus said that the Father has committed all judgment, he said, to the Son. That's significant. The one who took the sin of the world, the one who paid the price for everyone to come to God, will be himself the one who judges the thoughts, the intents, the heart. Jesus said when the Son of Man returns, 
to all of his holy angels, he will separate those people one from another. So he will be the judge. Now in verse 17, it says, Indeed, you call yourself a Jew. He's speaking to another group here. Remember I said there are several groups he speaks to. He's painting the picture here of the wrath of God. And uh, this third group um, are self-confident religious people. Not just the moralists, the religious Jew who boasts in his religion. And he's going to really strike a death blow to their confidence. Indeed, you call yourself a Jew and you rest on the law and you make your boast in God and you know his will and approve the things that are excellent, being instructed out of the law and are confident that you yourself are a guide to the blind, a light to those who are in darkness, an instructor of the foolish, a teacher of babes, having a form of knowledge and truth in the law. There were two basic things He's going to name a few things, but there's two basic things he's, he's up against. The Jews boasted in the law, the Torah, we have it, man, and a ritual called circumcision. As long as you're circumcised, as long as you have the outward sign of the covenant, you're okay. Not different from some Christians who would say, I've been baptized. I've got the outward ritual. I've been confirmed and baptized. Or I've been confirmed, baptized, and I have my letter in this church. These are the outward things that people rely on, sometimes for salvation. And he's going to speak to these issues here. Um, First of all, there are seven things he relied on. Uh, Indeed, you call yourself a Jew. It was a a status to be called a Jew. The, The very name Jew means praise to God, praise to Yahweh. And uh, in some Gentile communities... It was such a status symbol to be a Jew that some Jews included this as a part of their name, their surname. So if I were Jewish and I was living in a Gentile community, I would have written my name, Skip Heitzig, Jew. It was a special class. You call yourself a Jew. Second, they relied on having the law. And, he said, you rest on the law. We have the book, man. We have the book with all the answers in it. Again, it's different from having the book and practicing the book. It's like saying, I have a cool Bible on my uh, coffee table. You know, the big heavy kind, and we have all the names of our family written in it. It's cool looking. We own it. They relied on that. Third, they bragged regarding God. He says, and you make your boast in God. Some of them did boast that they were the chosen race, the chosen people. God did choose them. They are special. God does have a plan. But, and as good as it is to boast in God, it can also be a false boast if it's simply nationality versus spirituality. Fourth, in verse 18, they prided themselves on knowing God's revealed will. He said, and you know his will. They had the Ten Commandments. It was given to them. It was given to Moses on Mount Sinai. Fifth, They approved or discerned the things that were excellent. Because they had all these things, they alone could make superior moral judgments. One of their boasts. Sixth thing they relied on. You are being instructed out of the law. The scripture was a light to their feet, a lamp to their path. Seven, they fancied themselves as guides. You're confident, verse 19, that you yourself are a guide to the blind, a light to those who are in darkness, an instructor of the foolish, teacher of babes, having a form of knowledge and truth in the law. 
Because they had all this stuff, they were the only ones who could correct people. What happened, unfortunately, is some within the nation of Israel started looking down on people who were not Jews. And we've told you before some of the things they used to say, but because of our status, we would look down on others who don't have what we have. For we have it all. We have the law. We have the instruction. We are instructors. We are guides to the blind. It became very apparent. In fact, among the Gentiles, people noticed that Jews were loving to one another and hateful toward the Gentiles. Listen to what the historian Tacitus wrote concerning their behavior. Among themselves, their honesty is inflexible, their compassion is quick to move, but to all other persons they show the hatred of antagonism. I even read, I haven't chased it down to verify it in original documentation, but I, I read that supposedly in Alexandria, Egypt, where a large Jewish population abounded, that some of the Jews took an oath that they would not show kindness to a Gentile because they were not part of the favored race of God. You see then that the, these very privileges that should produce saints rather produced egotism, elitism. We have it all. They don't. That's why we have to be careful. We start walking around going, I know more of the Bible than most people do. And some of us can find a verse for anything. We're good. We're really good. We've memorized a lot. But if that knowledge causes you to look down on people rather than to get underneath and serve them and raise them up to God, something is wrong. Um, Luke chapter 18 is a good example. Let me read it to you. You can turn there if you like. Luke 18, verse 9. And he spoke this parable to some who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and despised others. Okay? Were righteous. Others are not. Same scenario we have in the book of Romans with this imaginary character Paul is speaking to. Two men went up to the temple to pray. One a Pharisee, the other a tax collector. You know the distinction, the Pharisee, the holiest of the holies of all the Jewish people, the tax collector, the scum of the earth. That's how they viewed it. The Pharisee stood and prayed thus, and this is interesting, with himself. Not with God, with himself. Though he said the words, God, I thank you that I'm not like other men, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. One wonders if this Pharisee prayed this prayer out loud. I have a hunch he did. It's my personal opinion that he prayed it out loud. He was that kind of a guy. And imagine how that would make the tax collector feel. Lord, I thank you that I'm not like other men, creeps like that tax collector over there. <laughs> Notice that this man had two lists, a negative list and a positive list. His negative list was longer than his positive. This is what I don't do. I don't smoke. I don't chew. I don't go with girls that do. I don't do all of these bad things. And it's always a problem when the negative list outweighs the positive list. On the positive side, he says, I fast twice a week. And I give tithes of all that I possess. And the tax collector standing afar off would not so much as raise his eyes to heaven, but beat his breast saying, God be merciful to me, a sinner. I tell you, this man went down to his house justified rather than the other, 
For everyone who exalts himself will be abased, and he who humbles himself will be exalted. I bet you've discovered this truth that religious people are the hardest people to reach with the gospel. Have you noticed that? They have it. They're instructors of the blind, and they know the stuff. They were raised in the church, man. I've asked people this question. Are you a Christian? And I've had the most interesting answers. Well, I was baptized in First Baptist. Or, am I, am I a Christian? I'm a Catholic. Like, I'm just, not just a Christian, I'm a certain kind of Christian. And I'm not picking on, you could fill in the blank in any denomination. The people will identify themselves with a ritual or a group that performs a ritual rather than Christ himself. Religious people are the hardest to reach with the gospel. I grew up in a religious home. People, my friend tried to preach a gospel to me. I said, what are you telling me for? I was weaned on this stuff. I know this stuff. This is me, man. It took quite some time for God to break that shell. The door into the kingdom has a low header. Anyone who stands tall and proud cannot get in. Blessed are the poor in spirit. Blessed are those who mourn. That's how you get in. If you ever travel to Israel, we'll take you to Bethlehem. Not because the church is all that special. The best thing about the church in Bethlehem, the church of the nativity, is its door. It's four feet, three and a half feet tall, four feet tall. Which means everybody going in has to bend really low to get in. I love just standing outside watching these tourists with all their cameras and videos and computers and stuff have to bend really low to get in this church. That's how you get in heaven. You have to bow. Can't be prideful. Can't stand up. You know, St. Augustine used to say that the thing that kept him out of the kingdom of God was his pride. He had pride in his status, pride in his education, pride in his background. Martin Luther said the same thing. He said, I relied on my rituals, my self-abasement. It wasn't until I abandoned that and saw it as nothing. And isn't that what Paul said? All those things I counted as something great. They're dung. D-U-N-G. Refuse. I've given it all up that I might win Christ and be found in him, not having my own righteousness, which is of the law, but the righteousness which is through faith in Jesus Christ, being found in him. You, therefore, verse 21... Who teach another? Do you not teach yourself? You who preach that a man should not steal. Do you still steal? You who say, do not commit adultery. Do you commit adultery? You who abhor idols. Do you rob temples? You who make your boast in the law. Do you dishonor God through the breaking of the law? For, and he's quoting now the scripture in the Old Testament, the name of God is blasphemed among the Gentiles because of you as it is written. Many of the Jewish leaders and rulers were guilty of some of these very things. It was common knowledge. In fact, the people knew, and it's written even in the Talmud, that some of the Orthodox leaders would get by on legitimate stealing. They would do things that were unlawful, illegal, but they would find a loophole in the oral law which would let them get by with stuff, but they would transgress the very heart of the law. Jesus mentioned this, Matthew 23. He said, you devour widows' houses, and for a pretense you make long prayers. Your condemnation will be justified and will be great, he said. 
Remember Nathan said to David what we read here in verse 24? When David sinned and Nathan gave him that parable and finally Nathan said, you're the guy. And David said, you're right, man, I blew it. Nathan said, for what you have done, you have given an occasion for the Gentiles, those outside the covenant of God, to look at you and blaspheme your God. In other words, man, you've blown your witness, David. You who have the opportunity to give the greatest witness, you've lost your witness among the Gentiles. Abraham did this, didn't he? When he told Sarah they're going down to Egypt, he says, okay now. When you go down and see the Pharaoh, you tell the Pharaoh that you're my sister. And so the Pharaoh took Sarah into his harem. Until he found out, hey, that's Abraham's, sister. That's Abraham's wife, not his sister. And he rebuked Abraham. He completely lost his witness for God with the Pharaoh after that point. You've given great occasion for the enemies of the Lord or the Gentiles to blaspheme. Reminds me of Jesse James. A story that I heard is that Jesse James went out and killed a man in a bank robbery. That day he went and got baptized in the Kearney Baptist Church where he was living. And then sometime later in another robbery, this time, uh, uh, the first time was a train robbery, second time a bank robbery, he killed the teller of the bank, went off to the church. He was the leader of the choir. He was t giving people lessons on how to sing worship to God. It said, Jesse J James said he loved Sundays. Loved, son loved going to church on Sunday. The only problem was, of course, he had a conflicting schedule sometimes. You know, he had bank robberies scheduled on Sunday and murders scheduled, and he couldn't always, you know, worship. And so the sheer hypocrisy of the self-confident religionist is what Paul is speaking against here. As John Bunyan once said, you can be a saint abroad and a devil at home. God forbid. For your circumcision, now he's getting to beyond the law, but the outward sign of the covenant. The, your circumcision is indeed profitable if you keep the law, but if you're a breaker of the law, your circumcision has become uncircumcision. Therefore, if an uncircumcised man, i.e. Gentile, keeps the righteous requirements of the law, will not his uncircumcision be counted as circumcision? Again, in terms of judgment. Not salvation, judgment. And will not the physically uncircumcised, if he fulfills the law, judge you, who even with your written code and circumcision are a transgressor of the law? For he is not a Jew who is one outwardly, nor is circumcision that which is outward in the flesh, but he is a Jew who is one inwardly. And the circumcision is that of the heart, in the spirit, not in the letter, whose praise is not from men, but from God. Circumcision was given to Abraham. Abram, at the time, it was a physical mark with a spiritual meaning. It meant, I have a covenant with God. I look at circumcision like this wedding ring. And you might rephrase this in terms of a wedding ring. Your wedding ring is honorable, as long as you stay faithful to your spouse. But the moment you break the faithful relationship with your spouse, it's just a piece of metal. It's nothing. Now, if you're unmarried, you could go out and buy a ring and put it on your finger, but it wouldn't make you married. You have the sign, but you don't have the relationship, the reality. The sign should point to the reality. 
And so it is with circumcision. In Deuteronomy 10, God says to Israel, circumcise the foreskins of your hearts. That, that was the whole point. They kept the outward ritual, but their hearts were far from God. He says, circumcise your hearts. And then he follows that up by saying, and don't be stiff-necked any longer. The obedience from the heart. So circumcision, says Paul, is not some magical thing that provides automatic insurance against God's wrath. Rather, circumcision points to the covenant, and the covenant is a covenant of obedience that I have with God, if I was Jewish. That's part of the law. And yet, among the Jewish people, there was a superstition, like I think there is among some Christians when it comes to baptism. In fact, listen to these two sayings that the Jews said. Some of them even memorized them. Circumcised men will never descend into Gehenna or go to hell. And another one, circumcision will deliver Israel from Gehenna. Well, Paul says circumcision minus obedience equals uncircumcision. Uncircumcision plus obedience equals circumcision. It's the heart, it's the obedience, it's the reality of the covenant. This would be shocking, of course, to a Jew, and he anticipates that, and he's going to come up with some questions that they might have asked him in the next chapter. Verse 29, but he is a Jew who is one inwardly, and circumcision is that of the heart in the spirit. The word spirit in Greek, pneuma. Not in the letter, in the Greek, grapha. Two very important words. He's contrasting pneuma versus grapha. In the spirit, not in the letter, whose praise is not from men but from God. Now these two words show the contrast or the difference between the Old Covenant and the New Covenant. The Old Covenant had the grapha, the law, the external commandment, thou shalt not do that, thou shalt do this. The pneuma is the spirit that is indwelling. You have an internal guidance system. The Holy Spirit of God indwells the believer. So you have the difference now of the Old Covenant and the New Covenant is seen by these two great words, the law versus the spirit whose praise is not of men, but of God. Now, what is said of circumcision could certainly be said of baptism, could certainly be said of church membership, could certainly be said of confirmation. In fact, let me just rephrase that for a Christian application. Verse 28 and 29. For he is not a Christian who is one outwardly, nor is baptism, church membership at all that which is outward in the flesh, but he is a Christian who is one inwardly and the baptism, church membership, etc. is that of the heart, in the spirit, not in the letter, whose praise is not from men, but from God. That's why, to me, it's sort of a moot point when somebody says, well, have you been baptized by immersion or have you been sprinkled? Now, we baptize by immersion, but I frankly don't think it matters. You can be hosed off by a fire hose. (laughs) You can be immersed so much that you grow gills. But if your heart is not right with God, if it has not been a thing from the heart, from the depth, from the core, all you did is get a good bath. It is absolutely insignificant, unless it is accompanied by the reality of a heart turning to God. So that would be the application. 
Now, we get into Romans chapter 3. Of course, we don't have enough time, and we won't be able to go through it all, but we can cover, I think, the verses that are attached to this. You know, this is the unfortunate thing. The Bible, when originally written, was written without any chapter breaks, without any verse numbers. Now, it's nice to have them. They were added later. It's convenient. It's sort of like knowing a road map, what block the person, what quadrant of the city uh, you live in and what block you live in and what street, etc. So it's helpful to find stuff. But originally, it was, didn't have those divisions. They're helpful, but sometimes a hindrance. And these thoughts are connecting. Because he comes up with some questions. What advantage, then, has the Jew? What profit is there of circumcision? In verse 3, what if some did not believe? In verse 5, but if our unrighteousness demonstrates the righteousness of God, what shall we say? Is God unjust to inflicts wrath? I speak as a man. These are a list of questions. And what Paul is doing is thinking through all of the ramifications of what he has just said, anticipating that somebody is going to have a point to argue. Knowing that there's going to be some very staunch Jewish people who do see the division between Jew and Gentile and say, now wait a minute, you can't lump us all together that conveniently. We do have a special privilege in relationship with God. And, and if you believe what you just said, Paul, what is the advantage of even being a Jew then? If you say there's no difference, is there any advantage at all? And so he's just devastated the religious person, right? Sort of like the emperor's new clothes. Remember the story? The emperor finds out he's naked. The religionist finds out I'm naked before God. I have no spiritual clothing on my own. He's just stripped it from them. So they're going to have a lot of questions. So he's thinking through all the ramifications. By the way, if you are a preacher or a teacher, uh, you are preparing lessons to teach other people, what Paul does here, I think, is a, is a great thing that we should all do. Whenever a message is prepared, it helps to think through the rebuttal. When I say this, how will it be heard? What will the teenager think with this statement? What about the single mother? How will she take that? What about the agnostic who could be present? What are some of the things that they would ask regarding this? And so the case is presented, he anticipates the questions, and he prepares answers. What advantage then has the Jew? Or what profit? What is the profit of circumcision? Much. In every way. Chiefly because to them were committed the oracles of God. What good is it being a Jew? Oh man, it's great. You've got the spiritual edge, guys. God gave you and your forefathers the book, the oracles, the commandments, the stuff. God spoke to your forefathers his self-revelation through the prophets. God spoke to you and your forefathers through the book, his plan for the future, for the world. You have an advantage. You don't have to learn it like some Gentile is. You grew up on this stuff. You were weaned on it. Remember Paul said to Timothy, from childhood you have known the Holy Scriptures. That's the advantage they have. It's sort of like saying, hey man, you had, what good is it growing up in a Christian home? Hey, you have an edge. You've heard the truth. You've assimilated at least parts of it. You have an advantage. It's a springboard. It's the same advantage that a non-Christian has being married to a Christian spouse. Paul says that in 1 Corinthians that you sanctify the unbeliever. doesn't mean they're saved automatically, but they have an edge. They're set apart by that marriage, and so are the children. There's an advantage because simply that relationship. 
So, to them were committed the oracles of God. You know, we owe a lot to the Jewish nation. If you've studied how the Jews copied the scriptures, you'd want to applaud them. They would copy with such meticulous care one manuscript to another that they would add up all the letters and all the markings horizontally, vertically, and if that number didn't exactly match up, it would be destroyed. And they'd start all over again from scratch. We know this to be true because several years ago, in the, several years ago, 47, something like that, the Dead Sea Scrolls were discovered, Qumran, that little community in Israel. And the Dead Sea Scrolls are so important to us because they show us the validity, the veracity of the copying of the scripture. You see, the earliest manuscript we had prior to the Dead Sea Scrolls discovery dated to about 400 A.D. Suddenly, the Dead Sea Scrolls were found that date to about 200 B.C. So now we have a manuscript suddenly 600 years older than the oldest one we had before. And so they compared them. And you know what they found? Nothing. No mistakes. They were identical. They compared this manuscript, the, the Dead Sea Scrolls, with, with this 400-year-old, and they found out that 600 years have passed, and a lot of copies have been made, and they're the same. The scroll of Isaiah was virtually identical. Blue people's mind, a new respect for the Jewish scholar was put in place. They were committed to you, the oracles of God. For what if some did not believe? Well, we're going to have to go through that next time, aren't we? Will their unbelief make the faithfulness of God without effect? Certainly not. Let God be true and every man a liar, as it is written, that you may be justified in your words and may overcome when you are judged. For if our unrighteousness demonstrates the righteousness of God, what shall we say? Is God unjust who inflicts wrath? I speak as a man. Certainly not, for how then will God judge the world? For if the truth of God has increased through my lie to his glory, why am I also judged as a sinner? And why not say, let us do evil that good may come, as we are slanderously reported, and as some affirm we say, their condemnation is just. He's going to finish answering these questions next time we open this book. We'll go through that. But uh, there's a phrase uh, I want you to look at. Verse 4, close with that. Certainly not. Indeed, let God be true and every man a liar. Let me tell you what he will do in the rest of this chapter, just as a preview. He's going to take all mankind, pagan, Gentile, moralist, spiritual Jew, all people, put them all in the interrogation room, take them all to the clinic, so to speak. Dr. Jesus will be there, give them an x-ray and say, ooh, it's really rotten, it stinks, you're so bad, death. He will strip them in the interrogation room of all of the clothing of self-righteousness. And then right after that, he'll take them to the throne room and clothe them in the righteousness of Christ. You have to take off one set of clothes before you can put the other ones on. You have to really realize how bad it is, the condition of man, before you appreciate the grace of God. And perhaps that's one of the reasons we don't appreciate the grace of God, is we haven't really been confronted with how offensive sin is to the heart of God. And when we believe that and we confess that, 
Oh, the joy of absolute forgiveness and being clothed in his righteousness apart from my own. And so that's the picture that he paints. And next time we'll be able to get into that next phase. We ended really at the right spot. He'll just sort of give a blanket indictment, quoting Psalm 14 and some other passages, of how bad the human heart is. And then he'll show in chapter 3, verse 21, but a righteousness of God is revealed. As much as the wrath is, so is God's righteousness. Beautiful, beautiful transition.